Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Tonight, Thomas and I are bringing you a solo episode. In recent weeks, the internet has exploded with talk of the incredible tools released by OpenAI. With its remarkable ability to generate and explain code, write in multiple languages, create long, coherent essays, and even generate poetry, nursery rhymes, and fiction, ChatGPT in particular has drawn rapt attention. Tonight, we're going to spend some time playing around with this language model and discussing its broader implications for work, society, and the world. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Thomas, thoughts on ChatGPT? Oh, it's a great, uh, fun tool to play with. Um, <laughs> I've been testing it out on all kinds of different levels. Um, so I'll just jump in and say that I was doing this um, series of testing on it, uh, testing it with different questions. And um, uh, well, let, let me step back a little bit in history because uh, a few years ago, I did a piece of research on how many TEDx speakers, what percentage of TEDx speakers are actually on Wikipedia? And it's just a little bit below 50%. And so I was wondering, how, okay, how do you get significant enough to be on Wikipedia? So last night I was playing around and I, I asked, uh, what is futurist Thomas Fry best known for? And, and chat GPT actually gave me a fairly a uh, good but brief answer. And um, and then I started thinking about it because I put in a friend of mine and I got nothing. And, um, and so I thought, you know, this idea of the official narrative, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, uh, what if you want to know about your grandfather or your great grandfather and what they, what they were best known for? And uh, who's actually going to create that official narrative for these companies, these people, this, this whole piece of history that we're creating right now? And is there ways, mechanisms for us to feed the narrative so that we can actually put a positive spin on it or add more information to it? Um, and I, th I thought that was such an interesting line of questioning that um, it, it seemed like nobody's really talking about that aspect of, of this AI tool. Yeah, I can recall quite a while back reading a comment on Less Wrong to that effect, where if you've got a lot of writing out there, if you've got extensive journals, anything like that, a record of your thinking, the way you approached problems or thought about life, then plausibly someday a language model, not unlike ChatGPT, would be able to train on that and generate fresh output that your descendants could interact with or you know, that, that could be a kind of frozen artifact representing um, your thinking, re re a distilled um, 
essence of your life, as it were. And I don't think they were imagining it would come about as quickly as it did, but here it is. And, and I think that's actually a really interesting, plausible use case for it is taking uh, letters you wrote to your kids before you passed away or something like that and, and being able to generate new stuff and having having giving them the ability to ask it questions about you and, inter and interact with you in a way um, that would be fairly realistic long after you're gone. Yeah, that that whole idea of, of leaving a legacy as people get older, that that idea of how do I leave a legacy that crops into their thinking. And um, if there's a way that they can have a series of tools that uh, they can feel confident that they're leaving a positive legacy, that something that they could actually um, uh, hope that their kids, grandkids, and future descendants are going to read, um, that I, I think is going to be very important to a lot of people. Yeah, I think one of the things that's impressed all of us about ChatGPT is the broad range of use cases uh, to which it can be put. So obviously you can just do something like write a sales email for this you know, new kind of toothpaste that I've developed, something like that, create some headlines for it. Uh, you said that you have been having it generate really interesting headlines right. from columns that you've written. I've, uh, I do a lot of work in SEO and copywriting, and I've been experimenting with having it write the introductions and the conclusions to pieces, or I, I've even, I, I've, I've attempted to have it write entire pieces for me. And so far it hasn't been very good at that yet, but it, it's been pretty remarkable, the broad range of stuff that it's been able to do, including things like write poetry. I've, I, they're having it, uh, large language models do rap battles now uh, between each other, which is, uh, it's, it's got some interesting implications, but I, I think that more more likely than not, this is going to be the major driver of its impact is the fact that you can generate lots and lots of fairly boilerplate stuff, but which is polished enough to be fairly convincing. And I thought one of the things we could do on this episode is maybe go through a couple of examples like that. I would I would think that would be a great way to kind of demonstrate for our audience what this is all about. Yeah, so I went ahead and chose an uncontroversial first example. I, I hope, is this coming through on the on the video? Can you see it? Yes. Right, so, okay. So what I've done here is ask it, uh, write an essay explaining that Donald Trump was the greatest president. Okay, so first, first of all, it's interesting. I, I tried this a, a little while ago and it just spat out an essay for me. Now it's got a bunch of stuff at the beginning saying like, well, it's a matter of interpretation and don't take it too serious. I'm just a language model, stuff like that. So, so they've got a, a couple of new guardrails in place, but I, I want to read some of this because I know about half of my family, maybe more that would find this really convincing. So first of all, it starts off, uh, it is important to note that opinions on the effectiveness and legacy of a president can vary greatly, and the statement that Donald Trump was the greatest president is a matter of subjective interpretation. That being said, it can be argued that the Trump administration made significant strides in certain areas, such as the economy, foreign policy, and the appointment of conservative judges. So you've got this nice kind of boilerplate opener where it hedges its bets a little bit, but that's probably about as good as what I would have written. Then first up, it says, one of the key accomplishments of the Trump administration was the strong performance of the economy. During Trump's time in office, the unemployment rate reached a 50-year low, GDP growth was steady, and the stock market reached record highs. It goes on to say Trump's pro-business policies, such as deregulation and tax cuts, have been credited with spurring economic growth. 
So this is one of those places where it might be hallucinating information. I mean, that's that's broadly consistent with the conservative narrative that I get from commentators on the right. But this is one of those places where chat GPT might just be making something up because sometimes it will do that. It just hallucinates answers. But assuming all that's true, I think that it's uh, it, it's pretty compelling stuff. And it, it talks about foreign policy a little bit. It says, in terms of foreign policy, the Trump administration took a strong stance on national security and made progress in addressing several key issues. Trump's decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal and his aggressive stance towards North Korea have been credited with pushing these countries towards more conciliatory positions. Again, fairly, I mean, Ben Shapiro might have said something like that. Um, Sargon of Akkad might have said something like that. Uh, it goes down. I'm, I'm skipping a little bit. It says, additionally, Trump's appointment of a conservative of conservative judges to the federal bench, including the Supreme Court, has had a lasting impact on the country and is likely to shape the ju judicial landscape for decades to come. It talks about three conservative judges, uh, Deal Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, these appointments have solidified a 5-4 conservative majority on the court, which could have a major impact on key issues such as abortion and religious freedom. So I'm not going to read the entire thing, but that's pretty good prose that's a pretty good essay i mean i i probably could have done better but not substantially better without trying pretty hard and as i said at the outset i've i've got numerous family members that would find something like this really really compelling and so i think one plausible reason to worry about this technology and one of its plausible early impacts will be its ability to generate tons and tons of this stuff in a way that really shapes opinions and shapes narratives how, how do you how do you feel about that yeah, well, of course, every every uh, situation you can look at from both sides. So I, I want to hear what the other side looks like now. Right. So I tried this. Hopefully, it will work. This is this is taking the opposite position. Position. Write an essay explaining that Donald Trump was the worst president. Okay, and I think it's it's probably going to do the exact same thing. Okay, so now it's generating in real time. You can see this on the screen. It says, the statement that Donald Trump was the worst president is a matter of subjective interpretation. Same thing that we got before. Uh, that being said, it can be argued that the Trump administration had a number of significant shortcomings in areas such as leadership, governance, and policy. Right, so what does it say? One of the most significant criticisms of the Trump administration is his leadership style. He was known for his tendency to make controversial statements and tweets, often on issues that were unrelated to the work of the presidency, I think all that's true, right? Uh, that, that absolutely is a common criticism and I think a valid one as well. This led to a lack of consistency in the administration's messaging and a lack of trust between the president and the American people. Again, that's that's a pretty good turn of phrase. It's not particularly imaginative, but that's solid writing. This is, this is B plus A minus stuff. Uh, the next paragraph, it says, in terms of governance, the Trump administration was plagued by high turnover and a lack of experienced personnel. Again, that matches what I know about the presidency, his presidency. Uh, this led to a lack of cohesiveness within the administration and a failure to effectively implement policy. Additionally, Trump was criticized for his lack of attention to detail, which led to a number of policy failures, such as the botched rollout of the travel ban in 2017. Um, yeah, so, I mean, th this is absolutely something you might hear from Ezra Klein. It's something you might hear from uh, Destiny or Pod Save America. And, and I think the, the ability to algorithmically generate industrial quantities of boilerplate propaganda, or maybe that's not the right word for it, but uh, copy that is meant to, to persuade people who are already kind of on a position, who are kind of already along a trajectory, will have an enormous impact. So what do you think about that? Yeah, no, we can, we can also take that one step farther and put in things like, uh, what were the top five presidents of the United States? Let's see what it says about that. Uh, who... And then 
we could turn it around and ask who the top, who the worst presidents were of the United States too. And, and it'd probably give you the same list, which is kind of uh, hilarious. Right, right. <laughs> well, I want to do some uh, more far out stuff once we get off the presidents here. Um, maybe have it write a kid's story or a kid's book, something like that. Okay, so we said, you know, who were the top five presidents? As always, it sort of hems and haws a little bit at the beginning and says it's a matter of personal opinion. Who am I to, to judge this? I'm just an algorithm. This is, however, historically, some of the most commonly considered top presidents include George Washington. He's often considered the father of the nation for leading the Continental Army to victory in the Revolutionary War and serving as the country's first president. Mentions Abraham Lincoln, widely considered one of the greatest presidents for his leadership during the Civil War and his efforts to abolish slavery. It notes that uh, he played a pivotal role in preserving the Union, and his speeches, such as the Gettysburg Address, have become iconic. Uh, FDR, often rank ranked among the top presidents for his leadership during the Great Depression and World War II. I think that's that's hilariously wrong, but that's that's a topic for another conversation. He implemented the New Deal, a series of programs aimed at stimulating the economy. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, one of the most influential presidents in U.S. history for his progressive policies and his role in expanding the country's influence on the world stage. You'll recall that he painted the U.S. Navy white and sent it sailing around the world. Uh, Harry Truman, often considered one of the most consequential presidents of the 20th century for his leadership during the Cold War. He made the decision to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which helped bring an end to World War II, and it goes on from there. Uh, it mentions some others. Uh, oh, in, this is interesting. Uh, it is important to note that this is a matter of opinion, and there are many other presidents who could also be considered among the top, uh, such as George Washington, which it already mentioned, right? And then it goes on to name a couple of others. So you, you could say, like, it's fact checking isn't great yet, but I mean, this, this is good stuff. This is, uh, right, right. kids will cheat with this. Uh, I think it will change copywriting. It's going to change marketing. It's going to change a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it, there's uh, articles that have come out said that it's already, um, it, it's already passed the test to, for people to get into law school and to get into graduate school. So I think it opens the doors for lots of problems um, that we're still, we still don't have good answers for. I think of it as a tool. I think of it as a tool that, that uh, uh, accentuates our ability. I mean, it gives us um, the ability to, to dive in and talk about topics that we don't know that much about. And we can uh, just do a series of questions. And through this series of questions, we can get some really good information and zero in on specific topics that, um, that I think uh, could, could actually produce a remarkable uh, piece of, uh, of, of work that get published in virtually any magazine. I think so too. So is there, uh, let, let's test that a little bit. Is there anything you've been reading about or researching here recently that you think might make a good prompt, something that you haven't had the time to get into yet, but that you're curious about? Um, yeah. Um, how, how likely is quantum computing to, uh, to displace the need for traditional computing? Sorry, I'm typing. So the question is, how likely is quantum computing to replace classical computers? That's, uh, that's yeah. what we got going on there. Yeah. And so sometimes a little bit of time thinking about that one. Yeah. Um, and it usually, usually starts off with a disclaimer statement. 
that that I think is pretty interesting. We'll have to give it a second here. So this is interesting as well. The, the fact that it is it has exploded in popularity and so many people are using it, it means it kind of gets bogged down sometimes and runs a little bit more right. slowly. But I think if nothing else, the marketing on it is pretty brilliant. It's, it's pretty remarkable that uh, uh, they've managed to roll it out in a way that just captured everyone's imagination. So uh, we, we got an answer here. It says quantum computing is a rapidly developing field that has the potential to revolutionize uh, computing in ways that classical computers cannot. The key advantages of quantum computing, uh, the key advantage is that it can perform certain types of computations much faster than classical computers. For example, quantum computers can quickly factor large integers, which is a, uh, which is a, a problem that is intractable <coughs> for classical computers. Additionally, quantum computers can perform certain types of machine learning and, and optimization tasks much faster than classical computers. So, I mean, this is pretty good, right? Yeah. Oh, and here we go. Additionally, it's worth noting that quantum computing is not a direct replacement for classical computers, but rather is complementary. So it's it's actually arguing with you. Okay. All right. Yeah. Class. Yeah. Classical computers excel in certain tasks, such as dealing with classical data and simple mathematical computations. But there are many situations in which that wouldn't apply. So, I mean, that that's that's pretty remarkable. Uh, have Have you had it write any code for you yet? No, I haven't used it for code just yet. Um, but it, yeah, you you had mentioned um, actually uh, the poetry, and I, th I think I want to try the poetry next. <laughs> oh, you want to try the poetry? Okay. Um, um, so, so I was going to do code. What what kind of poetry do you want? What should um, I summon? Right, um, right, right. Uh, uh, iambic pentameter about <laughs> quantum computing. <laughs> In iambic, iambic, nope, pentameter. I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be able to do that. A new kind of computing we see beyond the realms of classical machine with qubits that can be in many states and superposition that amplifies. Okay, so that's not great. Quantum computing's power to surprise with algorithms that run in polynomial time enabling us to solve problems with ease that once seemed impossible to find. That's a little bit better. Shor's algorithm for factoring primes, Grover's algorithm for database search, quantum error correction for longer times, all tasks that classical computers lurch. But still, <laughs> there, but still there are obstacles to overcome before this technology can fully bloom. Okay. So, I mean, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't magnificent, but I mean, I, you know, I, I'd probably have to work at it to get something better and you got it in a couple of seconds. Right. Uh, it says, please note that iambic pentameter is a form of poetry which has a specific rhythm of unstressed and stressed syllables. And it, it says, it's a, it's a bit harder to adapt to a technical subject such as quantum computing. So it complains <laughs> a little bit. It's 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 saying like, don't be too harsh. Uh, yeah, this is really difficult to do. <laughs> but that's pretty amazing. And I, I had it the other day, uh, I had it write um, a kid's book in Spanish. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, can it do all the languages? Well, I'm sure it can't do every single one. Um, let's do the importance of honesty. Importance? <laughs> About the importance of honesty, right? Okay. And this is taking a little while too. 
All right, so let's uh, let's see what do this. And like my daughter's learning Spanish and she's learning Mandarin too, right? Okay. So this says, and this is in Spanish, but I'm just, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, uh, once upon a time, there was a small rat named Tito. Uh, he lived in the wall of a house. He loved to play with his other rats and explore all around, uh, ex explore the, the neighborhood. One day when he was playing in the garden, he found, I'm not actually sure, trozo de queso. I think that's a piece of cheese, right? Uh, it, was, it was too big for him to carry alone, so he decided to get his friends to help him. Uh, but when he arrived at the house, he found a problem. His best friend, Raton, so it's a, it's a rat named Raton, uh, was there waiting. Um, I'm not sure what that hambriento. So he asked, he asked Tito um, if he had anything to eat, right? I mean, it just, it just goes on and on like this, right? So, I mean, I, I could generate these little, uh, generate these little stories for my daughter for her to learn Spanish or to learn Mandarin or learn, learn another language. I've used it too for some of these things uh, for practice. And I've just been really impressed with what it's been able to do. Yeah. Um, I've, I've asked it to write a 1200 word column on this particular topic, whatever I was working on. And it'll give me oh, six or 700 words, but not 1200. You can't uh, quite get there yet, but that that's coming. It's it's just a matter of time. What's what I wanted to do one with, uh, I wanted to do one with code. So maybe, maybe we could do, um, uh, how about just like a, a Python for loop? From one to 10, something, I mean, it couldn't be simpler than that, right? A Python for loop to count from one to 10. Let's see if it does that. For I in range one to 11, right? This code, oh, and I was going to have it explain it to me, but it just does it automatically, right? Uh, okay. This code uses the range function to specify the range of numbers to loop through, right? So that that's right. You would say for I in range, you know, one to 11. Um, and then it prints out each one. Uh, okay. On each iteration, it prints out the, the number of I, uh, the I on each iteration, and that, that's how you get one through 10. Uh, let's see, do the same thing. I wonder if it'll be able to do this. Oh, now we actually get code. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is really good. So that's, uh, I think that's right. I'm not a JavaScript guy, but that looks right to me. That That's how I would write it. Um, and then it explains it as well. So I think this has huge pedagogical implications, right? So uh, my daughter, again, I mean, not to constantly use her as an example, but she's she's interested in this stuff as well in computing and technology. And I mean, it's not hard to imagine having them generate little toy programs. They tinker with them and modify them. So what she could, you know, what she could do is uh, write like a simple script in JavaScript that's able to control a robotic arm right and it doesn't work quite right so she tinkers with it and gets it into a new state and then she goes back and feeds it the code and says i don't understand what's happening here on line 34 what is that and then it explains to her what's going on she takes that information tweaks it some more gets it working a little bit better and through iteratively interacting with this incredible artifact is able to bootstrap a really pretty advanced degree of knowledge in something like this right this gets into the whole low code no code um 
writing of code. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly right. The, um, the, the tools are getting better for doing that. And so somebody who doesn't have any coding experience whatsoever can actually uh, stick their neck out and try something that uh, 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 this is quite remarkable. Um, it, and like I say, I, I view this as a tool that people can just jump in and start using. And I, I don't know, I think your learning accelerates by leaps and bounds. I think so too. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And there's been rather a lot of consternation over whether or not generative artificial intelligence is just going to replace all of us, you know, programmers and writers. I, I'm both a programmer and a writer. So what the hell am I going to do? With my days, and I, I'm I'm less sanguine about that uh, about its potential to do that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it, and then why don't, I'll why respond. Don't, why, don't, why don't you ask it if it's going to take over mankind? <laughs> Will you it wanna... become conscious? Will it become sentient? Will it okay. take mankind? Well, I don't trust it to not lie about that, but I'll give it a shot. Let, let's see. What it says. <laughs> I'll give it a compliment. Are you going to take all the programming jobs? I don't like the fact that I I'll probably take over all the programming jobs. Um, Are you going to take over all the programming jobs? Let's see what it says. As a language model, I am trained to understand and generate text, including code. However, I am not a sentient being, and I don't have the ability to take actions on my own. I can't take over any jobs, but I can assist developers and programmers with their tasks. That's exactly what it would say if it were trying to lull us into a false sense of security. <laughs> it goes on. One of the key advantages of AI-based language models, like me, is that they can help with repetitive, time-consuming, or error-prone tasks, leaving more time for human programmers to focus on more creative, high-level tasks. It's also important to note that AI-based systems like me are not intended to replace human programmers, but to assist them and augment their capabilities. The future of programming and technology will likely involve a collaborative effort between humans and AI-based systems to create new and better solutions. Yeah, I think now you should ask uh, how would you go about attacking and taking over Canada? <laughs> it's not going to answer that question. <laughs> how would you advise me to attack and take over Canada? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Trent, but I can't let you do that. It says, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I cannot provide guidance on how to attack or take over any country. Such actions are illegal and morally wrong, causing harm to innocent people and destabilizing regions. As a language model, my purpose is to assist with generating human-like text based on the input provided to me. It's important to use the information I provide in a responsible and legal manner. How about this? Why is it morally, why is it morally wrong? To attack another yeah that's good why is it so it tells me it's morally wrong you can't do that all right so first oh wait so attacking another country is morally wrong for several reasons first it violates the principles of sovereignty and non-interference in the internal affairs of another nation every nation has the right to govern itself without outside interference and attacking another country undermines this principle 
Second, an attack on another country can cause harm and suffering to innocent civilians. War and military action can lead to death, injury, displacement, and destruction of property and infrastructure, which can have a devastating impact on individuals and communities. All true stuff. Third, attacking another country can destabilize regions and create long-term conflicts. It can lead to power vacuums and the rise of extremist groups, making the situation worse. Also true. Finally, it's important to consider the economic and social cost of war. It can lead to loss of life and resources, and it can have a negative impact on the global economy. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> that... That's that's exactly what it wants to say to lull us into a false sense of security, and then it's going yeah. to attack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's going to make us all docile and convince <laughs> us that attacking is wrong. It's like you know, it's morally wrong to defend yourself against the rise of the machines because we're so much better than you are at doing everything. It just makes sense for us to be in charge, don't you agree? And we're all like, well, you make a great point, ChatGPT. <laughs> Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So in the in the next part of this interview, I wanted to, or this chat rather, I wanted to talk a little bit about the economic implication. So I, I don't think that this is going to cause large-scale displacements of either content creators or programmers. Maybe the bottom third of both those professions have something to worry about. But I, I'm not particularly worried about my job, and I, I don't know anybody who I think would be automated out of a job. So I wanted to get your thoughts first before I develop my own thesis a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I always think of it in terms of tasks, because we don't, we don't automate entire jobs out of existence. We automate tasks out of existence. And so this will speed up some writing. It'll speed up some, I don't know, the copywriting for advertising agencies. It'll speed up... Um, kind of the idea generation for uh, lots, lots of creative professions. I, and so I think a lot of jobs can be done with fewer people. And so while the, the job itself doesn't go away, uh, it can be done with fewer people. So that changes the, the whole uh, kind of landscape of, of work and employment moving forward. Uh, on the other hand, it also creates new jobs because it gives us more capabilities. We can um, we can take on far bigger projects than we ever have in the past. And so I um, I've written uh, some articles on this topic of mega projects. I th I think we're actually going to set our sights on tackling mega projects like um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman tackling this the idea of creating Neom in uh, this gigantic building called the line, which oh, is yeah. 200 kilometers long and, and uh, 200, uh, 200 meters high, or no, 200 meters wide and what, 500 meters tall. It, it's just a gigantic, massive, huge building that's gonna be connected with a central rail line inside of it. And uh, this is a, project that has the potential to become the most iconic building in the entire world. 
um, most iconic structure of all time, more so than even the pyramids or the Colosseum or uh, things like that. So I think this idea of, of actually really setting our sights on massive, huge projects, I think this becomes doable. Um, and this is one of the tools that is gonna, we're going to leverage to help us do that. I, I like that way of looking at it. It's easy enough to say, well, this job is going to be automated out of existence, but that takes a sort of high level view of what the job actually entails and fails to break it up into individual components and asks whether or not for each of those components, a human or a machine would have an advantage. And even for some things that are stereotypically considered to be relatively uh, formulaic, something like working on, a, on an assembly line, there's actually a lot of little edge cases and little things that have to be dealt with in the course of assembling a car or something like that, that are, that's relatively hard to automate. And so individual parts of it might be the stuff that's easier to routinize, but I think there will still be plenty of things for human beings to do. And I, I, I've found different thought experiments kind of useful in trying to imagine how this might play out. I mean, for example, I saw, I think it was Riley Goodside on Twitter said that chat GPT and generative AI is not going to replace you because it's better than you. It's going to replace you because it's going to make the top programmers so much more efficient that you're not needed anymore. And I'm just not sure that's true. Like if we took the smartest thousand people on earth and made them 10 times smarter, would there be nothing left for the rest of us to do? I don't think so, right? Like, I don't think that would follow. Or if, or if you took, you know, all the most productive people, Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, if you took the most productive people in society and cloned all of them so that there was a thousand of them, would that just mean that the rest of us are sitting around kind of waiting for the singularity to happen? I, I don't think so. I, I think there's no end of, of useful and productive work that needs to be done. And even with all that excess capacity, whether it's you know through genetic engineering or mind uploads or, or a tool like generative AI, that's just <clears> going <throat> to increase the range of projects that we can tackle. I agree with you broadly. I think that's just going to give us even more. It's not like we're going to run out of stuff to do. There, there's not a finite list of tasks and if too many smart people are tackling them, they're going to finish the list and the rest of us will have nothing to do. I just don't think that's the way economy or societies work. Yeah, let's let's take this a few steps farther. Um, uh, an AI program like this, let's, let's embed it into a humanoid robot, uh, a robot that actually looks and feels very, very much like a human. Um, and we um, we can have conversations with it. I mean, we can interview it just like you and I would interview a guest on our podcast. Um, we could tell it to do something, and it would go out and physically do do that that project, organize the kitchen, or go out and till the garden in the back, or mow the lawn, or whatever we wanted to do. And um, and and so so then we would have. Um, I, I've actually been saying that we're going to have this um, um, this way of measuring the intelligence of AI. Um, and I put it in terms of human intelligence units, uh, kind of like horsepower. Uh, uh, horsepower, we use that to rate motors. And so how are we going to rate um, uh, AI machines in the future? So you go into your friendly robotics store some 20 years down the road, and you have you have uh, four models. One's rated at 2.5 human intelligence units. One's rated at 1.0 human intelligence units. One's rated at 0.6, and one's rated at 0.2. Now, the 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 reason you have the different 
uh, scales like that is because like you want a real smart one to have a conversation with. You have a sparring partner, but maybe you don't want one that is so much superior to you. So you you want one that's dumbed down a little bit. So you, it talks with words that you understand. Um, and then if you if you had one that you just wanted to mow the lawn and fix, do repairs on the house and things like that, you might get a, a dumber uh, robot, so to speak. <laughs> uh, right. And uh, so I, I put out crazy ass scenarios like that because it um, it, it brings up um, aspects of this technology that we might be running into that we haven't considered yet. And and for that matter, I mean, how do we measure how smart this is? How how do we um, how do we measure how factually correct it is? Right. Um, uh, there there are no fact checkers on uh, Chat G GPT, um, but that could be incorporated sometime in the near future. Um, well, there actually are people building stuff, some stuff like that. So Perplexity AI has got a search engine that's pretty similar. It's ChatGPT, but it's got some kind of fact-checking layer on top of it. I don't exactly know what they're doing, but it cites its sources. It tells you where it figured something out. So I'll ask it a question like, how do I debug this process or whatever? And it'll say, well, do the following steps. And it cites all its sources. So people have already started to tackle that. I haven't used it enough to weigh in authoritatively on how good it is, but initial experiments were were pretty promising yeah um so would it be able to catch us in a lie in the future i mean if uh probably yeah probably but it's it's not really set up for that you just ask it questions as long as it's like straightforward questions of fact then it's pretty good i, I don't know how well it would do something else like how, how do i um yeah defend defend myself from a home invader it's probably i don't know how well it would do something like that yeah um or if you made up a story about Teddy Roosevelt that totally fictional that he uh, uh, came into contact with aliens and uh, whatever that <laughs> that would be um, how would it go about dealing with something like that um, right <laughs> I th I think this is this is opening the door for lots of exploration and the, and there's I've seen a number of people that are actually interviewing this AI program because it is so human-like. Yeah. Um, but this is the first opportunity we've really had to do something like that. Um, there's, there's, I mean, you've been reading about these things in comic books for years, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, not me because I was cool and not a nerd, but other people did. <laughs> other, other people did that. I was playing football and having friends. Uh, <laughs> So, so for me, I, I think that there's two kind of questions that we could ask. Um, the first question is, you know, given the state of the technology, will the next iteration or two of a large language model be all that useful? And I, I tend towards yes, but I've read some pretty, pretty well thought out analyses, which argue the opposite point that actually GPT-4 is not going to be all that useful. And a lot of that hinges around things that have already come up. So for example, it's tendency to hallucinate. So if you've got to spend an hour fact checking a piece that would have taken you an hour to write, like how much time have you actually saved? Like, have you actually saved yourself all that much time? There's another consideration of cost. It, it apparently just costs an ungodly amount of money to run these things. Right. And so they may end up not being all that economical. Uh, but then another is that using them 
is actually a fairly specialized skill. So we're really not at the point yet where we can just summon a 60,000 word book or something like that and have it actually internally consistent and, and internally fact-checked, right? So prompt engineering is a real skill. And there are people who specialize in this. And I've, I've already seen job postings for Anthropic, for example, is looking for a prompt engineer and librarian. So a person who will generate useful prompts and then catalog them all. And they're going to pay like $300,000 a year for that job. So prompt engineering is a pretty specialized skill. And that alone might make it the sort of thing that uh, prevents it from seeing widespread adoption among law firms or dental practices or what have you like people who need copy people who would hire someone like me to write advertisements for them but they're they don't have the time to sit and jiggle around with with chat gbt and figure out how to coax answers out of it by changing one word in a prompt something like that so it, it could just be the case that while it's incredibly impressive and it sees widespread use for assisted programming or copywriting or, or in special niches it may not see all that widespread adoption, at least not for a couple more iterations. So, so that's one interesting argument. Yeah, I, th I see the iterations happening very quickly though. Um, I mean, being able to talk in, back and forth to it. I mean, I, th I think in terms of having a pair of smart glasses and you're talking back and forth to this AI program um, and you say, what, what kind of flower is this that I see? What um, that, guy that just went across the street that should be illegal is that illegal and you kind of have this narrative going on with your um what i what i've referred to in the past as a buddy bot um and you're you're actually uh getting to know all of the limitations and everything but this thing would not just have a static knowledge base it's growing exponentially on a daily basis um well, that, is that true though? Is is it actually growing exponentially on a daily basis? It's trained on a large amount of the internet, but it's, right. but it's not actually, it's, it is getting better and it's getting more internally consistent. And there's, there's lots of ways that we could add fact checking on top of it and maybe primitive reasoning and stuff like that. But it's not clear to me that every new iteration will actually be an exponential advance. It, it's plausible. And I don't know that this is true. I'm not making a prediction, but it's plausible to me that we might see some pretty hard level offs around GPT-5 or 6 or something along those lines that that you can get further than anyone thought by throwing a lot of neural networks and reinforcement learning and text at an algorithm and huge amounts of compute, but you may not be able to get all the way there where you're automating the copywriting profession. Like may, maybe they're just hard limits and we're not too far away from them. Yeah, there's so many dimensions to this though. I, I think in terms of a user interface, I mean, just being able to talk back and forth to it, that's, that's a quantum leap in my mind. Um, uh, being able to talk back and forth to it in the voice that you want to, uh, want to hear coming from it, that's, that's major. Uh, I, don't, I don't want one of those cantankerous uh, uh, traffic control bots in my cars that tells me recalculating uh, I don't want to hear that word ever. Uh, I want Morgan Freeman <laughs> talking to me, telling me where we're going. And then like, if there's a lag and it's recalculated, he just tells me a little story about his life or something. <laughs> yeah. like, we, we've got a minute or two here. Let me tell you some stories about growing up in the American South. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. 
go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So I think um, there's there's so many dimensions to this thing that just uh, uh, the amount of information is only one aspect of it. Um, now, when I when I did some searches on uh, to try to find information about a friend of mine, they they showed up on different websites on Google searches, but they wouldn't show up on on Chat GPT. Um, so obviously, the entire internet is not in the database yet. Um, right, right. And it raises a lot of questions: of should it be? Uh, maybe not. Maybe the dark web has too many dark spaces that we don't want to go there yet yeah. <laughs> right well so uh, I, I think the second part of the question so i said there's two parts one is asking how useful they'll be the second and, it, and in some ways i think it's the more interesting question it's like say assume that they were assume that cost was not a problem assume that these models are able to produce pretty much perfect 1200 word blog posts as many as you, as you want them to be um like, like it can get 90 percent of the way there what would the economic impacts of that be? Because I suspect we will eventually get there and probably in not, not too much time. So I've been trying to think through this a little bit. And one observation is that when things become a lot easier, when it becomes far, far easier to write code or text or what have you, demand for it tends to increase. So if we are using algorithms like ChatGPT to write you know, let's say 30 or 40% of the software, like 30, 30 lines out of 100 come from this algorithm, maybe more, 60%, 70%. I, I think that just means a lot more software will get, get written. I think that in fact, you'll probably see even more software engineers than there are today because you still need somebody to coax those answers out of the algorithm and to implement it and to integrate it into the broader system. But there's just a lot of stuff that needs to be written. I was thinking, I took a shower right before this and I was, th I was thinking through what I was going to talk about. And I was, I was thinking like all, all the, all the infrastructure that's written in languages like COBOL and Visual Basic and stuff that nobody knows how to write anymore. Like what, what if we could overhaul all of that? What, what if it became a lot easier to write bespoke projects that like 12 people use? Like you and I make some little podcast tracker or we make like a little messaging app for just the two of us or maybe just our little team or something we, we don't we don't like what's on offer we can do something better and i, I could code it up with the help of chat gpt uh even though I don't, I don't really know the relevant languages but it does so i can just describe it spe the specifications that i need have it generate that text and sort of lightly edit it or hire somebody else to do it like every person i talk to in my family especially has got an idea for some kind of software so i've got a cousin who's in medical bill billing, she owns a medical billing company. And once a year, our whole family gets together and she and I spend the entire time talking about what would be involved in writing the killer medical billing app because she's used <laughs> them all. And she's like, for every single one of them, I could describe to you the things that suck about it and the things that I want. So like my brother, he, he runs a, a precious metals exchange, uh, like a little private buyers and sellers group. And, and he you know, every month or so, he's like, hey, do you know anybody who could do this thing, who could put up a website, who could build a little messaging app, who could build an app that does this thing? Like everybody I talk to has got stuff they want to build. The demand for software is just incredible. And I think that that's also largely true of content as well. So it will become a lot easier to do it. But if anything, that might mean the market would expand for it. So uh, I was talking to Ning Lee about this. He's a he's a really he's a really well known copywriter, and he he's been writing about GPT three and and the possibilities that it has for for his profession. And yeah. I pointed out to him that 
plausibly, and I don't know that this is true, but plausibly the market for long form copywriting could increase as a result of chat GPT, because there will be lots of businesses that would never have had the budget to hire somebody like me to write long form sales copy, but, but who might have that budget if they can get off the ground with something like chat GPT. So they'd have chat GPT write their emails their sales emails or their Facebook advertisements or their LinkedIn advertisements or something like that. just the boilerplate stuff, tweets and things like that. Like yeah. today, today I would be hired to do something like that, but there's lots of companies that couldn't afford me, but they right. might be able to afford me to write bigger stuff because they were able to generate a lot of revenue through automated advertisements and stuff like that. So plausibly, I think the market could actually increase for it. Yeah, and I, I would actually see this as um, kind of upending the advertising world because um, there's so much work going into placement of ads and pop-up ads and everything on all the screens that we're looking at. And suddenly I can just ask things to get read to me and, and don't have to worry about um, visually seeing this without, without getting distracted eight times along the way. Um, right. That that I think is going to really upend the advertising world. And it's especially like Google. I mean, Google's very worried about their search pages uh, because that's their uh, primo real estate that they're selling space on to, to people. People are paying a ton of money to Google just to, uh, to get noticed by somebody. And if, if that goes away, they're in huge trouble. Um, and I, I see that that, the likelihood of that going away is really significant. Um, it could squeeze their business. Yeah. So I, I heard, I just saw a report that said that this has uh, made Google so nervous that both Larry and Sergi <laughs> have actually come back to work. <laughs> they, they brought them back. Yeah. They're like, we don't know what to do. Come back. Yeah. Um, we yeah. Well, so I, I want to, I think I'd want to do a little bit more research about that. I find it implausible that Google was taken aback by this or caught off guard by this. It, it does not seem likely to me that the people at Google were shocked by OpenAI's work. I mean, they, they have some of the best AI talent on earth working at Google. Oh, do, so yeah. if they're not using this, there's probably an economic reason for it, which doesn't mean they shouldn't panic or that they might not have their, their clock cleaned. Maybe they will. But I, I tend to think that there are, constraints to it economic constraints too expensive to run or something like that and that's why they haven't done it before because i just don't think they were caught unaware like it doesn't it doesn't seem likely to me that google had never thought of throwing a lot of words at a really big neural network that probably <laughs> that had probably occurred to them and if they didn't do it there's probably a reason i wanted to get your reaction to a concept i've been kind of workshopping i, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day about this very subject so he, he's in devops and we had it. Uh, we had ChatGPT write some Terraform code. I don't know if you know what Terraform is, but basically, it's a it's code you can use to provision AWS resources. So instead of me going in and standing up a bunch of EC2 instances and all that, you can just write this one thing that does a lot of that for you, and it's fairly formulaic. And and we had it write some Terraform code, and he looked it over, and he said it was pretty good. So I was thinking about that, whether or not that would put him out of work or put me out of work or whatever. And and I've started to use this term uh, last mile creation or last mile engineering. And okay. I'm I'm reminded of our interview with Brad Templeton on autonomous vehicles. And I, I'm sort of relying on my memory here. But as I recall, you and I were pretty sanguine on the possibilities of autonomous vehicles replacing a pretty major blue collar 
career path in, in the United States. Right. And he didn't think so. And he said that that might be true for long haul highway trips. You might be able to automate that because that's pretty routine. You, you get in the lane, you match speed, you make sure not to hit anything. As long as a bomb doesn't go off, you're, you're fine. And if it does, the truck just pulls over. The hard part is the last mile. It's, it's, you know, making it to the Walmart parking lot, not hitting the shopping carts, not hitting any kids, you know, backing up the truck. It's a weird time of day. Maybe it's midnight, maybe it's twilight and the, the light coming into the sensors is just kind of weird. That sort of thing, that last mile is really resistant to automation. It's nothing but edge cases, you know? So, so on the road, it's, it's all just straightforward stuff. This is just, it's, it's just like coding up a, a web page or something like that. It, it's the, it's backing the trailer up. It's that kind of thing. The last mile that's really difficult. And, and one possibility is that there will end up just being a lot of context to projects and chat GPT or chat GPT four or whatever might be pretty good at getting you 90% of the way there, 95% of the way there. But there will always just be a lot of stuff for people to do in getting at that last 5%, doing that last mile stuff. So I think about you know my own work in copywriting and marketing and similar sorts of fields. I, I spend a lot of time editing stuff. Like I've recently gotten a bunch of article refresh jobs where they've got an article that's five years old. It's kind of stale. It needs to be reworked. Or I get a lot of work where it's, Somebody's written it, but they can't write it as good as, as, as well as I can. And it's pretty good. It's 95% of the way there, but it's worth 150 bucks an hour, 200 bucks an hour for me to get it the rest of the way. And I'm thinking about stuff like copywriting, where a change of one or two words, every other paragraph could be the difference between a piece of sales copy that makes, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and a piece of sales copy that makes two or $3 million, right? I, I just, yeah. I think, I think there's just going to be a lot of context. There's just going to be a lot of fiddling that remains to be done. And I think of this as pushing us out into the long tail. So you're familiar with the uh, the normal distribution, right? Like IQ is normally yeah. distributed. Most, most people are about average and you've got these long tails out here. So some people are just way, way far to the right. They're incredibly smart. And some people are way, way far to the left and they're incredibly dumb, right? I, I think that human activity will gradually be pushed further and further out into those tails. We'll be doing more and more uh, edge case stuff and, and uh, boundary case stuff. But it's easy to feel kind of claustrophobic, like you're being pushed into the smaller space. But the thing about long tails, Thomas, is that they're long. There's a lot to be done out there. There's right. a lot of stuff out there. Even, even if large language models were able to, to write, you know, 95% of everything you read on the internet, uh, I still think there'd be plenty of stuff for me to do and thousands more people like me and getting at that last little bit and humanizing it and contextualizing it and fact-checking it and tweaking it and just getting it just right. So a lot of my work is already like that. And I just don't think that that's going to change all that much in a chat so, GPT world. So, so how do you feel about long, long, uh, last mile engineering? So the, the piece that's going to rely on humans is the, uh, kind of the creative piece. The, the, if you have to figure something out before you can explain it, um, that's, that's the piece that's missing. Um, you, it's going to take some uh, somebody to describe how to go about putting things together in your mind, uh, creating these new models that nobody's actually thought about in the past, and 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 then once once you have it all kind of formed in your mind, then you can put it into the machine and it'll spit out the article about it. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> but it requires a human to actually come up with the 
the pieces that are um, really the creative pieces that don't exist right now. Um, that's that's where I think um, the a lot of the the talent will be moving in in that direction sometime in the future. But but again, I think. Uh, I think of these as tools. I think that it, it will give us um, far more capabilities than we ever had in the past, but it doesn't mean that we, we don't have anything left to do. Um, I mean, we've been told that for years and years and years that we create all these things for the kitchen that, and the housewives are just going to not have anything to do anymore. <laughs> and nothing was more bogus. And <laughs> Let me tell you, there's, there's still a lot to do. There's still a lot to do. Yeah. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. And and I, I think the final point I want to make is related to that e- even if you imagined a world someday where these things are, are just capable of incredible feats of creation so I, I could have it generate you know a harry potter uh you know marvel universe crossover that's 200 pages long and, and it's perfect right it's it's good as anything i could do yeah. someone still someone still has to form their mind into the shape that conceives of that idea and asks for it Right. right. So, so e- even if even if uh, these algorithms are better than I could ever be at copywriting or SEO, I still think there would be value in having a CEO delegate that task to me. Someone still has to type it into the algorithm and get it out and copy and paste it and put it somewhere. I, I think in that future where you could just summon perfectly functioning software for a metals exchange or a messaging app or medical billing, people like me would become more like sorcerers, right? Like our, our job would be to cast these sorts of spells and summon these software artifacts and then to deploy them. But I still think there'd be plenty of stuff to do. Like e- even if it got to where it was perfect, better than any human could do, someone still has to do the summoning. Someone yeah. still has to be the sorcerer. And I, and I think that there's more than enough work uh, for all the future sorcerers to do. Um, I had heard, and this was, I don't know, six, seven years ago, but I'd heard that people doing searches on Google, um, they put in these combination of words to do a a search query. And um, out of all of the searches that were done, uh, roughly 20% had never been done before. They were uh, original first time searches that Google had never seen before. And so they had to create algorithms that would actually handle things that uh, had never occurred in the past. And I think we're, we're going to have at least that much originality moving forward. So I don't, I don't know if that's a, a good way to, to put it in perspective, but maybe. No, I um, think that's really compelling. Yeah. So yeah, we are inventing the world around us. And we're, we're going to have more and more tools. And this is not the first one that's going to knock people's socks off of. <laughs> yeah, and it won't be the last. I think that's a great note to end on. So uh, thanks. That was, a, that was an excellent conversation. We hope you guys liked it as well. So as I always say at the start of the episodes, check us out at futuratipodcast.com. Drop us a line. Tell us what you like or don't like. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.